If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 10 this morning. Several months ago, we started a series in the Psalms, and slowly but surely we've been making our way through. We come to Psalm 10 this morning, a Psalm of David that begins like this. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall meet, though I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. May God bless the reading of his word. The psalmist's question that he asks at the beginning feels relevant because it is. Every generation at one time or another asks the question, God, where are you? Every person at one time or another most likely asks the question, God, are you there? Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 9 and saw that God is the great judge of all the world, that he has established his throne for justice. And we saw that David was assured that the Lord would hear the cry of the weak, that he would hear the cry of the afflicted, and that he would avenge them in all their trouble. But now, David looks at what's going on around him, and he considers that that does not always seem to be the case. If God is good, why do the wicked still succeed? Where is the God of justice when injustice seems so prevalent? As we seek to unpack Psalm 10 and find the answers to these questions, we want to ask ourselves, what is the main point that we should see? What is the big idea that we should take away from the psalm? What can we grasp hold of this morning that will give us hope and confidence this week and in the months and years to come? It is namely this, that David shows despite the oppression of God's people, we can pray with confidence to God who is the just and the eternal king. Now we're going to unpack that theme across four steps. First we see uh, in David's psalm here, the plea of the afflicted. The plea of the afflicted. Psalm opens with these questions. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? 
And what we see here in this plea is that David is confused by God's absence. He's confused by God's absence. David doesn't mince any words when he begins. Why is the question, and it's a powerful question. Just at the outset, let me just say that we said at the very beginning, especially those of you that weren't here, the very beginning of this series, that one of the things that we find in the Psalms is honesty before God. Sometimes we think that we have to come with pious words. We have to come and kind of mask our emotions and just kind of knuckle down and say, well, he's God. Listen, that's not the way the biblical writers portray both God's people and the God of the Bible. David feels complete freedom to come before God and express exactly how he's feeling. And you should as well. David does not understand why God is absent in the midst of troubling times when his presence is needed most. By asking, why, O oh Lord, why? David implies that God's actually acting out of character. God, David expects that God would show up, that he would do something. He fully expects that God will help and is shocked by the treatment of believers who are at the receiving end of the tyranny of their persecutors. Why isn't God stepping in to help. That's what he cannot understand. That's why he's calling out to God in this psalm. Now, sometimes the Bible is clear that God is far off because of us. In our sin, which we cherish and we hold on to, and we fail to come to grips with before God, we fail to repent of before God, we begin, as it were, walking away from the Lord. And so, yes, God is distant. He is far off. But it's not because of any fault in Him, but rather because of us. We are the ones that have walked away and made Him distant. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. There's nothing to indicate. In fact, just the opposite. It seems that these are righteous people, faithful people of God's covenant community in Israel that are failing to receive the help that God has promised. Because of the confusion about the success of the wicked, we see that David is also concerned for God's people. He's confused by God's absence and he's concerned for God's people. In verse 2 he says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. David is concerned for God's people because it seems that the enemy is about to pounce on them and to crush them. The concern is very much here in David's minds for those that are most vulnerable in the society in which he lives. So we will see in a minute as we walk through the rest of this psalm, the wicked think they're going to get away with something. They think that all of their plans will escape the gaze of God and therefore it emboldens them even more. They have no shame in what they're doing. And that's why David desires they be caught by their own schemes. He wants their, pl he wants their plans to backfire and for justice to prevail. And we need to understand this opening plea to God is driven not by some theoretical problem. It's not just some theological exercise in the classroom somewhere, but by the real world everyday injustices that David sees, that David himself has experienced. In fact, you'll notice he continues to meditate on these things and spends a considerable amount of time considering the problem of the wicked. The problem of the wicked. This is the second step that we want to see in this Psalm of David. In verses 3 through 11, David actually describes the wicked. I don't think David has one particular person in mind here. I think what he has is a, competent, a, a composite picture of all kinds of wicked people that he has encountered, that he sees even in and among the people of God. What characterizes the wicked? Well, broadly speaking, two things. First, an arrogant heart. An arrogant heart. 
the wicked are steeped in pride. It drives how they think and what they do. In verse 2, David explained that the wicked go after the poor and he hoped they would be caught by their own schemes. Why? Verse 3, he gives the reason. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In other words, the wicked turn against the poor because they first turned against God. Rather than honor God as they should, they have renounced Him. And the result is that they boast in their own desires. That's sort of an unusual phrase, even in English. And I think it's tied directly to the next line about their turning from God. Instead of desiring the things that God desires, the things that God delights in, they delight in their own sinful desires. What God says is wicked, they say is good. Given the context here about being greedy for gain, I couldn't help but be reminded of that famous 80s movie, Wall Street. I've never actually seen that film, but I've seen over and over and over again in all kinds of other uh, places that famous scene where Michael Douglas's character is explaining to the shareholders of this paper company that he works for that greed is good. That's what he says. Greed is good. Well, God says greed is idolatry in Colossians 3. That if you are greedy for gain, it's because you worship a false god. You worship the god of money and of wealth. But Douglas's character, Gordon Gecko, says what I think most Americans probably really think. Not that greed is idolatry, but, quote, that greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other manufacturing corporation called the United States of America. The wicked boasts in their desires. They are driven by greed. Why? Because they've renounced God. Money is driving their life because God is not. He has no place in their thinking. More than that, they've sought to cast off all dependence on or devotion to God. Notice verse 4. David says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. That is God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Just think about the hubris of that for a moment. Just think about the audacity. It's not that the wicked literally think there is no God. Uh, that, that kind of uh, modern atheistic mindset that would say, oh, we're all just material bits, you know, we're all going to be dust one day and float in the cosmos and become part of some star as the universe reboots in a big crunch and a big bangs over again. That kind of thing did not exist in the, among the ancient peoples. What they're saying is, yeah, they're gods, but they don't care about us. They're not watching us. They're not going to do anything about us, and so we can live however we want. They, 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 in their pride and their arrogance, they have self-confidence that leads them to abandon any thoughts of God and how it ought to affect their lives. They see no need of Him, nor give Him the worship that He deserves. And because, verse 5, His ways prosper at all times, David says that Yahweh's judgments are on high, out of His sight, out of the sight of the wicked. And as for His foes, He puffs at them. The wicked don't think they're ever going to suffer any consequences for their actions. They don't think about how God thinks about their actions. They don't think they're ever going to be conquered by any of those that would oppose them. Because they always have seemed to have success, prospering more and more, they think that they are unstoppable. And that only feeds their arrogance. David makes clear that the wicked says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. That's what they believe. 
James Johnson, a pastor or a commentator on the Psalms, reminds that the writer of Proverbs says, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The wicked forget this. They like to view themselves as self-made men like sharks made to swim at the top of the food chain. This pride is Darwinian at its core, a survival of the fittest that grinds the poor to the dirt. In their arrogance, they think God will never do anything. They have nothing but contempt for God and laugh at any idea of judgment. In fact, they do not worship God, they worship themselves. Such is the arrogant heart of the wicked and even for those that would seek to portray themselves otherwise. When I watch the news, when I read the newspaper... I cannot help but see such men and women plastered all over the place. David goes on, though. He doesn't just think about their arrogant heart. He also meditates on their aggressive violence, their aggressive violence. Now, that may seem like an unnecessary repetition. Isn't violence by nature aggressive? And I would say, no, sometimes violence is passive. Sometimes violence is provoked and is necessary. So if you come into my house at night while I'm trying to sleep and and get ready for work the next day and uh, you threaten my family, I'm going to get violent on you. I'm not aggressive. I'm not out there looking for it. But if it comes to me, I will respond with violence. That's okay. It's justified. But what we see here is an aggressive violence. They are on the prowl. They are looking to be violent. They are looking to take someone out. They are the ones that are seeking to come in and threaten, not the ones that are offering a defense. David says, the mouth of the wicked, verse 7, the mouth of the wicked is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. In David's minds, words become the first level of violence against the weak and the helpless. They are the choice weapon and the wicked's acts of destruction. Continually, they speak lies and destructions, seeking to manipulate and condemn with what they say. Paul will actually later quote these, this verse in Romans 3 to show that even his own people, the Jews, are guilty before God as a sinful people. Now, can we just pause and think about what David is saying for a minute? Particularly those of you that claim the name of Christ are members of this body, the larger body of the church, believe yourselves to be Christians. Think about what David is saying here. What is one of the first marks in his mind of the wicked person? A person who sees no need of God, who lives as if there is none, they have no control of their tongue. Worse, they actively use it for evil. They, they, they use their words as a weapon against other people. Is it any surprise in that in the New Testament, Christians are told to take great care with their words? Jesus lays down one level of care, reminding us that we are to give an account for every idle word that we speak. That's a frightening thought for most of us. We will stand before God one day and He will say, on September 27, 2015, why did you spend an hour and a half talking about nothing of eternal significance? Why were you joking the next morning about the pseudo-pornographic show you watched on HBO with your friends at the water cooler? Why were you belittling the guy that sits next to you at the office? Why were you complaining about your spouse at home? Why were you doing this, that, and the other? Why the idle talk? We'll have to give an account, but Paul goes even further. He expands on Jesus' teaching and he explains that God intends we always speak the truth 
and that nothing come out of our mouths which does not build up and edify others. That our speech is meant to be grace to those who hear. That's another devastating standard. What, 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 is you, what is your language like? Not just in terms of do you use profanity or not. I mean, I mean frankly, that's kind of like base level command here. We're talking about the fact that everything that you say, everything that you say to your friends at school, to your parents, to your siblings, it is meant to build them up. It is meant to edify them. It is meant to be service to them from God. My fear is that we often sound more like the wicked than Christ's disciples. We play the games of the world using speech to give ourselves subtle leverage against others. We jockey for position, putting others down, belittling them. We gossip to secretly condemn others or to justify our own sin. We lie to escape the consequences of our sin and launch well-crafted arrows of attack and self-defense when others confront us because of our shortcomings. But loved ones, can you imagine how much different this church, this world would be if all God's people spoke as Christ commanded? If they were marked by truth and integrity and love in all their non-idle words? If we stewarded our language in every utterance as God expects? The wicked have no intention of doing that. The violence of their words is only matched by the violence of their hands. David says in verse 8, they sit in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. The wicked person is pictured as an animal stalking its prey and he chooses his victims well. He singles out the innocent, the helpless, and the poor. Why? Because they're easy targets. They're vulnerable. Even today, the poor, the needy, the weak are often on the margins of society. And it's very easy to take advantage of them because they have no voice. They have no influence. They have no one to speak up for them. See how verse 11 once again gets to the heart of the wicked, revealing their innermost reasoning for such sinfulness. They wouldn't have abandoned all the laws of justice and goodness for their fellow man if they had not first given up any sense of religion and had in fact risen up in rebellion against the one source of moral light, namely God himself. So David says in verse 11, the wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. Think about this. The wicked are wicked because in their heart they believe God's not paying attention to them. There will be no accounting. He doesn't care. He doesn't know. He doesn't see. Now that we have this picture of the wicked person in our mind, here's the final stinger in the tail. Here's what really makes it bad. Notice this wicked person is not from outside the people of God. He is not identified as someone from among the nations, but rather someone from within Israel. It's someone who has rejected not just God generically, but Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel. It is someone who is moving freely in and out among the villages looking for someone to take advantage of. The whole, the, the, the whole meditation of David is made the worst by this kind of gut punch at the end which says, this is not just some evil guy out there. This is someone who claims to be part of God's people and really isn't. 
And what effect should all this have on us? Man, it's a long time to think about wickedness and wicked people. What, 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 what do we do with that? How, how do we respond to that? Derek Kidner in his little commentary says that part of the function of the Psalms is to, quote, touch the nerve of this problem and keep its pain alive against the comfort of our familiarity with a corrupt world. In other words, instead of just turning a blind eye to the injustice and the suffering of the weak and the helpless at the hands of the wicked, we should stare at it in the face and it should continue to move us to action. If you've never seen it, I would invite you this afternoon, uh, get on Netflix, get on Amazon, go to Family Video, wherever you rent movies and watch the film Amazing Grace, the life story of William Wilberforce. He is a man who, because of his Christian convictions, worked to end the slave trade among many dozen other things in England. But he has this, there's this scene that represents what really took place, and namely, they rent this, this, uh, this boat, and, they, and, and they, they, they get all these wealthy people on, on the boat, and they have this nice tea party, and they're expecting to hear William Wilberforce talk about some social ill, some thing that they want to do, and they're going to donate to, and what they do is cruise up right up the Thames, right next to them, a slave ship. And you can see on the face of these people, like, what is that smell? What is that ghastly odor? And men and women, they're taking out their handkerchiefs, they're covering their faces, and, he said, and Wilberforce steps up and says, on the slave ship, he says, put down the handkerchiefs, uncover your mouths, smell deeply and take it in. This is the stench of our national sin. This is the evidence of slavery. And now that you have seen, do not forget but work to kill it forever. That's what the psalm, the psalms intend for us to do. That is what David intends for us to do under God's guiding hand as he writes this psalm for the people of God. It's that we never walk away and just close our blind eyes to the problem. I, I, I am in no way seeking to be political, but the reality is it is the height of arrogant, wicked depravity that politicians will refuse to watch the videos about Planned Parenthood and continue to do nothing about the situation. They, they don't want to know because if they know, they might have to do something about it. And as God's people, we, we should not have that choice. We don't have that choice. And we spend any time in God's Word, especially the Psalms, the injustices of the world and what that means for us becomes immediately apparent and we have to say to ourselves, what are we going to do about it? Primarily, Primarily, we should think about the injustice of the fact that two-thirds of the world, if they die tonight, will be in hell forever because they've not heard the gospel of Christ and they've not believed. It is the greatest moral injustice in the world. What are you doing about that? What are you doing about it at work? What are you doing about it in your neighborhood? What are you doing about it around the globe? Are you facing down that injustice and seeking to work for it just as much as you would seek rightly to end something like abortion or the slave trade? We still have human trafficking that goes on all the time. We don't call them slaves. We call them porn stars. But you look at the statistics and something like 75% of those people are there against their will. What are we doing about that? This is the effect that it ought to have on us. But more than that, more than that, it should make us zealous for God's glory. I think it's incredibly insightful that in his commentary on this, on the, on this particular psalm and on these verses, uh, uh, Matthew Henry labels this section not something like the character of the wicked that we would expect, but rather David's great indignation against sin. 
See, it's not simply enough for us to observe the sins of the wicked and know that they are sin, to agree that that is wrong. If we know God, if we love God, then we ought to be moved from observation to indignation when we encounter sin, both in our lives and the lives of others when it is working against the weak and the innocent. So Henry says that the lives of the wicked are a blasphemous reproach upon God's omniscience and providence, upon his holiness and rectitude of his nature, and upon his justice and the equity of his government. The way these people live their lives is offensive and blasphemous before God. Woo! Do we think that way? Matthew Henry goes on to say, in singing this psalm and praying over it, we should have our hearts much affected with a holy indignation at the wickedness of the oppressors, a tender compassion of the mercies of the oppressed, and a pious zeal for the glory and honor of God with a firm belief that he will in due time give redress to the injured and reckon with the injurious. In other words, we understand that any sin is first and foremost an offense against God. And in that sense, it ought to raise our ire. Whether we see it in the mirror after reading this psalm or whether we see it in someone across the road or on television, our thoughts ought to eventually say, God, how you are blasphemed by this wickedness. Notice though that in the midst of all this, as easy as it might be for us, David does not fall into despair or give up the faith. No, as painful and gut-wrenching as his meditations are on the wicked, everything leads him back to God in prayer. That's how it starts, and that's how it ends. And so this is the third thing that we see, and we're going to move more quickly in these last two points. We see the prayer of the faithful. The prayer of the faithful. Notice how David prays. First, he asks God to remember the afflicted. To remember the afflicted. David prays and asks God, forget not the afflicted. Even though the wicked believes that God will not call anyone to account for their actions, David is sure God does see. God does know. He is aware of what's going on. In verse 14, he says he sees the mischief and the vexation done by them towards the helpless and the fatherless. He says, look, God has not forgotten them in the past, and he's not going to forget them in the future. God knows and he sees. Therefore, he prays to God and says, look, remember the afflicted. This is who you are. You are the father to the fatherless. You are the helper to the weak. Be the God that you have promised to be. Be the God that you've shown us to be. I know that you see the affliction, so remember it and do something about it. That's David's prayer. Secondly, he says he wants God to rise up against the wicked. To rise against the wicked. You know, in 1999, Thomas Druce was an up-and-coming Republican lawmaker and the Pennsylvania legislator. But one faithful night as he was driving home, a drunken man came stumbling into the street. Druce hit him. In fact, ran him down in his Jeep Cherokee and then sped away. He told friends he'd been in a minor car accident and the insurance company that he had hit a barrel in the turnpike. If you've ever driven on a turnpike, you know that's a pretty likely scenario. But then the police received an anonymous tip and of all things, a Christmas card. And they questioned Druce. His guilt was made known, he was convicted, and he was sentenced to four years in prison. In his arrogance, Drews thought, what difference does it make? It's just, a, it's just an old drunk. I'm a politician. I, I'm, I'm a wielder of political power. I am important to society. What, why should I derail the plans for my life because of this, of this outcast? And he almost got away with it, but God saw. God knew. And he gave justice in this world. The arrogance of the wicked did not last forever. 
And that's the very thing that David prays for in these verses. He asks for God to rise and to lift up his hand against the wicked. David prays the powerful arm of the wicked and the evildoer would be broken in God's just and righteous wrath. Think about that imagery. He's not literally wanting God to come down and like drop rocks on people and have their arms snap over. But, but, but the, the, the arm is a symbol for power. It's a symbol for your strength. And David says symbolically, break their arm. Just, just put them down so they can wield no, their wickedness no more. He says, to you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account for how long? Till you find none. In other words, God, don't stop until you have wiped out all wickedness, all injustice, all sin from the face of the earth. Here's my advice. Don't pray that unless your own sin is covered by the blood of Christ because you're asking for your own judgment. David asked that God would continue to render the wicked powerless until there's no more wickedness around how can he pray that way? How can God, or rather, how can David take and think about all of the stuff that he has seen, all of the meditations of the wickedness, and then turn right around and pray with great zeal that God will step in and do something about it? What, what, what is his confidence? What is the basis for launching on that kind of prayer? Well, David tells us. The last thing that we see in verses 16 through 18, we see the promises of the Lord. We see the promises of the Lord. These are the things that give him confidence in prayer. Number one, the Lord's eternal sovereignty the Lord's eternal sovereignty. It's the thing that we've seen over and over again in the Psalms. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and the nations perish from his land. Part of the confidence that David has in prayer comes from his belief that the Lord is king over everything. He is sovereign over the wicked just as much as he is all the nations of the earth. And his rule, his reign, his kingship, his sovereignty extends forever. It doesn't ever end. There has never been, nor will there ever be a time when the Lord has not been king over everything. It doesn't matter what the wicked do now, what they will do in the future, this truth still stands. God is king. And because of that, we have confidence to call out to him and say, do something. You have the power. You have the ability. You are a good and righteous God. Therefore, exercise your authority and step in and change reality. Break the arm of the oppressor and lift up the hand of the weak. More than that, David has confidence to pray because of the Lord's present strength. The Lord's present strength. This is what David says in verse 17. Yahweh hears the desire of the afflicted. What is their desire? To be rescued from the hand of the wicked. David can go out to the Lord and pray with confidence because he believes that the Lord has heard. He has heard his people. He has heard their prayers for deliverance. But if the Lord does not immediately break the power of the wicked, he gives strength to his people in the midst of their difficulties. Don't miss that. Because in the mystery of God's providence, sometimes it's not best for him to step in and stop injustice. It seems backward to us. We wonder, why not? In the sovereignty of God and the wisdom of God, there are times when injustice allows for grace and mercy and the goodness of humanity to flourish in ways that people actually come to know God and they wouldn't have otherwise. And so if the injustice will not be dealt with now, God gives strength to his people to stand firm in the midst of it, to not bow the knee, to not fall down, to not have their faith crumble. 
If you've been reading with us on the two-year Bible reading plan, you finished up 2 Timothy recently. Do you remember what Paul says at the end of that letter? He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. He's standing before the Roman government, and he has no one to advocate for him. All deserted me. But he goes on to say in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul's a frail old man. He's been beaten. He's been abused. He's had rocks under his head. He's been climbing out of windows. He's been running around the country. He's been bitten by snakes. He's been beat with rods. And, he, and here's this old guy all crumpled and bruised, and he's standing before Rome, the most powerful government in the world, and there's no one at his side. Temptation is to say, why am I doing this? Why am I here? But he says, the Lord strengthened me to give an able defense of the gospel that the Gentiles might hear of Christ and believe and be joined with the church. That's the testimony of the apostle. Paul could be the testimony of us as well when we call out to the Lord for present strength. Finally, finally, David had confidence to pray, not just because of God's eternal sovereignty, the offer of present strength, but also the hope of future salvation the hope of future salvation. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. David looks forward and says, one day, one day you're going to end it all. And that's the hope that we have in the midst of our current struggle. Many years ago in Gary, Indiana, a gang of men came into the New Jerusalem Baptist Church carrying guns. They robbed the entire church. They brutalized one of the young people all the while holding them at bay. Towards the end of the fiasco, one of the men brazenly asked, Where's your God now? Where is He? He didn't stop us. Where's your God? As the story is recounted, of all the people to stand up, it was a 90-year-old woman in that congregation. She was told to sit down and said, Honey, I'm 90. I'm dead already. You, you, you ain't gonna hurt me by shooting me. She goes, Listen, I'm gonna answer your question. You say, Where is God now? I'll tell you. She said, Our God is in the same place he was when they crucified his son. He's still on the throne. And he's still accomplishing good, the greatest good in the world, namely the salvation. Of sinners. God has not forsaken his people, even in their adversity, any more than he ultimately would forsake his son on the cross. He didn't forsake him. He raised him back up from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. He gave him all rule and authority over everything. On the cross, Christ experienced agony, agony of affliction in our place, bearing the wrath of God for our sin. That we might be brought to God through faith and repentance. And now, when we have faith in Jesus as our Savior, indeed, we are brought to God, not just as servants, but as sons. And the great hope of the gospel is not just for present forgiveness, but future justification. When we stand before God and give an account for all the sin in our life, we need not worry that He says, you know what? Forget it. He pulls the lever and we drop into hell. No, He's going to look at Christ and say, because you've trusted in Him, His righteousness is considered to be yours. The judgment that you deserve right here, right now, for all of eternity, I poured out upon him on the cross. So come and welcome 
to spend all eternity with me, your heavenly Father. And when Christ comes again in glory to receive his people back to himself, he will not be the humble Savior who willingly is brutalized and crucified. He will be the judging king. He will come and he will end sin forever and bring every injustice to the pit of hell that there might be a new heaven and a new earth where the wicked will never afflict anyone ever again. Where never again will there be anyone poor and helpless, terrorized by the world. That future salvation gives us confidence to pray now because Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And He has given us this promise that He will never leave us or forsake us. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come back for you. That's the promise that we have that gives us confidence in prayer. My final question is this, do we pray this way? When we read through Psalm 10 and we think through what David is saying here and why he's saying it, do we say, oh yeah, that, that, that's how I pray. You know, as I was reading this psalm and preparing for this sermon, two things struck me. First of all, how completely common this psalm is. That There was nothing here that took me by surprise. There was nothing here that I had not read or thought about before, frankly. But here's the other thing that struck me. Just how uncommon this kind of prayer is among God's people. I don't hear people pray this way. It strikes me then, if this kind of prayer flows from what David thinks about God, and we don't pray that way, then what do we actually think about God? Not what do we say we think, not what do we affirm because of some confessional statement or some creed, but what place does he have in our everyday life? What real authority does he have in our heart? What kind of confidence do we put in him day to day, week by week, in the worst adversity. Father, I pray that as we think about all that David has said, all that he has prayed before you, Father, we will think of our Savior Christ. We will think of the way in which we have been brought near to you, that Father, we have hope even in the midst of terrible adversity and terrible circumstances that you have not forsaken us, that you have not forgotten us. Father, you will return and one day put all wrongs right. And Father, may that lead us to great boldness in our praying, great fervency, great zeal. And more than that, Father, may our prayers move us towards great and determined and even sacrificial action that we might share the gospel of Christ to those that have never heard. And that, Father, as we await his return, we might work for justice in this world in his name. Amen.